0: We like try to dig in about how people got into tech, you know, talk about their stories, not just, oh my God, I got in this crazy data science project and there was no data or all the data was hard, (laughs) hard in like paper (laughs) copies. And, you know, I think 14 and 15, wasn't that like when OCR was coming out, it wasn't even like fully fleshed out. We had
1: OCR for, God, we had OCR back in early 2000s. It was expensive, but you could do it.
0: Now it's like it a, a package in Python that's free, isn't it? Yeah,
1: about there is when it got cheap, but oh no, it was available forever.
0: I feel really old when I have to explain to people that I've been doing data science since the time the term was coined because I have recruiters and stuff they're like oh yeah um, we need someone with like 15 years of data science experience I'm like so you know that term was like coined at Facebook you know around like I think it was 2011 and 2012-ish I don't think it's possible but thank you for (laughs) for asking
1: I used to tell people they would come up to me and they would say hey we need somebody with at least 5 to 10 years in data science and I would say oh that's awesome it's no one (laughs) So, um, Andrew Ng, we're connected. I can give him a call. Uh, don't think you're going to get him. Uh, you can, <laughs> it was, yes, it's crazy. And it still is. Asking for 10 years of experience in data science is nonsense. What I was doing, I have all left now. Yeah, I will be 11 in May. So, in 2012, it was not data science. None of us were doing anything machine learning related in business. All of that was academic.
0: Accidentally got myself into a statistics program learning machine learning in 2011, 2012 before it was cool. Yeah, yeah I did.
1: I mean, my first uh, CV pro- project was 96 or 97, I can't remember, it was in college. But I mean, no one was doing it in business. Nobody was really putting anything into production except at Google and they were still trying to figure out how to get forward from MapReduce into something that was that would scale better and that would handle all the infrastructure needs that they had they were still solving logistics problems you know between 2016 and 2010 so it's amazing to me that we have people that say oh no I was doing machine no you weren't oh come on Be real with us. We were there. I mean, I took a
0: machine learning class, but it was like solving parameters for distributions, like in the real world. And it was using like expectation maximization, like,
1: ooh. Yeah, but I mean, it wasn't, it was more like analytics, though. We have to really kind of, I think we need to be honest as data scientists and look at anything before 2014, really. And say, okay, yes, I was using machine learning methods. However, what I was producing, not what I would call rigorous, not exactly defensible models. I don't think, I don't think I would, um, with a straight face, present what I did in, in very large companies and, I mean, I'm turning a little red because I'm remembering it. I did in very large companies in front of very important-sounding people say some stupid things back in 2014.
0: But they didn't know that.
1: I think the I think the scary thing is I didn't know that, and I probably should have.
0: I don't think anyone knew that back then. Like, the stuff we were doing was cutting edge for that time period. Like, right. Bag of words approach, like, was cutting edge at one point in time. Now it's like, oh, gosh, really? That's what you did?
1: Uh, Just one more war story. I have implemented bag of words in Java. Yep. That that hurts. Uh, That's almost confessional.
0: Why?
1: Exactly. Why would I do that? Yes. It was so long ago that getting it to work in Python was actually worse.
0: I did it in R the first time I did it. (laughs) That's all I have to say to myself.
1: I should have tried that. You probably should have tried it in R. Maybe that would have been easier.
0: They it had all like was just the packages. Such a miserable
1: programming language. Now it's awesome, and like all the terrible things I said about it early on in my career are coming back to haunt me. But yeah, it was bad. I just cannot explain how bad it used to be.
0: So I'm a little naive. I only know, like, statistics. So I know, like, MATLAB and R, and I taught myself Python, and I've never taken nice. a programming class.
1: Nice.
0: I have, like, little to no CS experience. Like, everything on HackerRank is something I taught myself, not from a class. <laughs> That's awful. Uh-oh.
1: You know, and I would say half of the best programmers I've ever met are self-taught. There is no... There's no skew in one direction or another, whether you get a CS degree or you learned watching somebody on YouTube. There's no skew. About half of them come from I taught myself and the other half you know, have that background in the CS degree. It's incredible that you can do it either way now and be unreal good at programming.
0: Or just even like have the acumen or the know-how. And It's more about like application than... Having that degree, I mean, in data science, it's it's still important to have that degree and or be published or be able to point to projects that are completed, but starting out, you can go, fr- go from a bootcamp into it and it's, it's kind of okay now.
1: <laughs> I think we're finally stratified enough. We didn't used to be. When I first started out, I had to actually do full stack data science mm-hmm. and I was lucky because I had the background to pull it off, but it was a lot simpler. When I was first starting there wasn't the need for hardcore data engineering best practices or ml engineering best practices ml ops was so much easier at the very beginning because everything we did was so much simpler Mm -hmm. even if it looked more complex on the surface what was going on under the covers so much simpler people didn't rely on it as much as they do now So when something broke, it was kind of like no one figured it out. No one knew. So I had a week, two weeks to fix models, retrain them, redeploy. It was no big deal. Everybody's just like, oh, that stopped working? Really? I didn't notice.
0: Yeah. I have been there, unfortunately, or fortunately.
1: I don't think it's a bad thing. We were there at the very beginning and it was the Wild West. Well, of course it was. No one knew what we were doing. I didn't even know what I was called until 2013. I was making up job titles.
0: And making up job tiles, I don't think MLE was even, like, machine learning engineering. MLE was, like, I think Maximilian's likelihood estimate. If you said MLE to me, like, even seven or eight years ago, I wasn't going to be like, oh, yeah, that's that's a type of engineering. So it's kind of—I like to think of it like how computer science was back in, what, like, the 60s and 70s. There was no textbook. There was no software engineer and, like, you know, this is the way that it is. And and we're kind of learning things as we go forward. I always, I have a cute little lecture that I like. It basically says like some people classify techniques by the decade they were created in. Some people classify techniques by like the number of neuron layers that you have in it. And basically at the end of the day, we should just like say the technique we're using. And if you're going to communicate with another data scientist, say like, I did a neural network instead of being like, I did deep learning just because like it's, It's a sales buzzword at the end of the day, whether it's deep learning or, you know, artificial learning or machine learning, those all kind of feel like sales terms. And you can, and I think I even did this to prove a point. You can open up textbooks, pull the definitions out and they conflict. And I know you teach a course, don't you? Yep. Have you ever noticed that or am I just off in my own little corner?
1: (laughs) No, when I first started, this was back. I don't teach data scientists to be data scientists anymore. Mm -hmm. They used to, and now there's hundreds of people, thousands of people doing it. So I'm no longer necessary. Now I teach strategy and leadership and product management and how to make money with data. So that's, that's the side I'm teaching now, but it's exactly that when I first started out, this always made me laugh was the economist background versus the engineer background the two groups would never use the same terms for anything. It was never the same. And I was, it just was frustrating. I would have one side saying something and I'm like, no, you gotta, that, that, yes, that's right. But let's not use loss anymore. Let's use something that's a little bit more, no, no, no but loss. It's like, Oh God. I get it. Economics just it's rules the world. Can we just, Agree on something else now. Can we we please use a different language? Because loss means something totally different for
0: us. In statistics, one hot encoding is called dummy variable encoding. Mm -hmm. So I told someone that they needed to dummy variable encode their data, which I thought was like, you know, just you Google it. They thought I was insulting their intelligence. (laughs) Got horribly (laughs) angry at me. And I was just like mystified. They had to like come back to me the next day and they told me that, that they got upset because they thought I was insulting their intelligence. And I was like, one-hot encoding I learned that day is the same as dummy variable (laughs) encoding.
1: The language part of this is really, yeah, it is really funny. And the backgrounds that people come from are so territorial when it comes to naming conventions. It's almost guaranteed to be an argument. And especially, it was right around 2017, 2018, where a lot of science, hard sciences disciplines, and I don't know if you saw this or not, they started getting really angry at the scientists because we started reinventing and sort of appropriating stuff that they had had for decades, sometimes longer. There was a point where somebody in the data engineering world was reinventing ontologies. And the knowledge management and information science part of the world Oh, they lost their minds. It was just a free for all. Anyone that was m- talking about these new concepts just got beaten up on Twitter and on LinkedIn and in conferences. And it was just, but it's been like that because data science has, we've, we have appropriated every other scientific domain's work and said, yes, we invented that. And it, I think it hit the tipping point in 2017 and 2018 where they just said, no, that's enough. Okay, no, no more. We will not give you one more thing. You're done. You cut off.
0: I mean, I I don't think my professors from my graduate program are very proud of the fact I became a data scientist instead of being a stat, staying a statistician. Because I was a good statistician and I was like, but I want to play with more data.
1: I want to actually use statistics for something people care about.
0: I want to affect And have, like, my model utilized in day-to-day practice. I mean, it is, I did, you know, go the route of, like, p-value and stuff and published Mm -hmm. articles and for a while. But I don't think anyone read anything except the other people that needed to cite it in order to build on it. But, like, I don't think anyone was like, oh, yeah, this is great reading material.
1: Everything I published between 2012 and 2015, I can't find. I mean, I Google stuff that I've published. I can't find it. It's like it's just disappeared from the face of the earth. So I have the exact same experience. I went the traditional academic publishing route, and guess what? I can not even Google my stuff. That's how bad it was.
0: The secret, I think, is that you get a research gate, and then as soon as I got the article, I'd put it, like, officially published with, like, all the citation and everything, put it onto research gate and make it free access. Because as the author, you're allowed to offer free access, or, you know, they... People would request it and then you just like hit a button that says like give them free access. I don't think you can let it be like a free-for-all on the article for legal reasons. I'm not 100% sure, but that's the only way that I still have all my stuff is I uploaded it. Or it's on some external somewhere, lost.
1: I've got it on a thumb drive someplace. I mean, that's how old some of these things are where we're still using thumb drives. Yeah, it's probably on a thumb drive in this office, I hope, somewhere. (laughs) Somebody might want to see it someday. Uh, cause I can't find. It. Literally, I Google it, cannot find it.
0: I get to feel extra old because for my thesis, I used floppy disks.
1: Hoorah! But yes. I,
0: I am not that old. <laughs> but I get to feel old. I'm basically. not going to
1: tell you, you know, the 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 technology that I have, I have encountered in my life. But I've seen some backward stuff. You're. You're in good company.
0: So what got you into tech? What got you interested in data science?
1: What got me into tech is the better story. Okay. So yeah, this is the one no one ever asks tech. They always ask what you asked second. What did you get? What got you into data science? But what got me into tech was a better story. I was playing a video game called Carmageddon, which if you can Google that, you've just figured out how old I am. Was second year in college in the civil engineering program played a game called carmigaden and i needed more RAM for the pc because it was lagging and stalling and i mean this was like maybe one step above 8-bit graphics and the computer couldn't handle it so i needed an upgrade i called someone to upgrade my ram and they said i've got the tool for that the tool is a screwdriver <laughs> and that got me so mad that I started taking computer classes because I thought to myself, if this person is charging over a hundred dollars an hour to change RAM with a screwdriver, civil engineering's the wrong place for me to be going. I need to be doing something different. And that's how I started in technology. I got got into a couple of classes and then I realized, wait, I've been writing. Oh, I wrote programs. Wait a minute. This is what. Oh, I did this when I was like 12. Oh yeah. yeah no, I remember this. <laughs> That's how far away from tech I had gotten. I was writing programs and building stuff and didn't even know that that was a career. So that is how I got started. Next semester transferred from civil engineering to computer science and away I went. When University of Nevada, Reno got a grant from Microsoft to do computer vision classes. And so I guess what I landed in was a computer vision class and that got me hooked. I saw it and went, this is the future. I'm going to graduate from college and go work from Microsoft building Hal. I'm building AI and I graduated and that was that first, you know, bust in the mid nineties. Everyone realized, no, we can't do this. The technology just isn't ready. We don't have anything that can store enough data to train one of these things. And we don't have the compute to actually do any of this. Sorry. So did traditional engineering roles for around 15 years, 2011, all of a sudden it came back and I got laid off in 2012. So I needed to do the, okay, so now what? And I started V squared, just went out, started hustling for customers and clients and landed some folks, started a company. It's been 11 years now. I am significantly older than that person.
0: And significantly wiser.
1: I don't know. I was pretty good back then, and I'm starting to get on that old side where, like, you... <laughs> things are starting to go to decline. I don't know. He might have been a smarter person than I am.
0: What is your favorite or most interesting project that you're allowed to talk about publicly that you've worked on? No? You're not allowed to talk about publicly? Anything not
1: in detail? I have one. The first one that I signed was a five year NDA, and they just renew every year. So I haven't touched this project since 2016, and I'm still under non disclosure for it.
0: I have something that I'm on non disclosure, and I'm like, I can tell you verbally when I'm not being recorded what it is, but yep. I can't put it on my resume. <laughs>
1: Yes, there are two, two types of non-disclosures that I have, which prevent me from talking about a whole lot of projects. Mostly now, the NDAs that I'm on are a result of the strategy advising that I do. So there's there's some secret sauce that I shouldn't talk about. And that's really, it's not the projects that I worked on, but the back end of the strategy process and some of the meetings that I was in, those are more of the sensitive details. So it's what I know about strategy more than what I built and I've literally built everything I, I bounced from industry to industry. Pricing, customer behavioral models are my favorite ones. I just can't talk about all the cool stuff. I just really want to one day I'll be, I can't all my stories from 2015 and before are too embarrassing to tell, not really that interesting. And all of the good stuff that I've done is under NDA.
0: So I'm sure you can relate to what I'm about to say. Like the reason I got into statistics was because I could go into any vertical and apply statistics and I get to learn about new things and it's exciting and I really enjoy it. But now if you talk to recruiters, they're like, yeah, you have to have experience in that field to go in to be a data scientist and supply line. You can't just go be a supply line data scientist. And I'm like, that's taking all the joy and fun out of what I do. Please let me like, you know,
1: you're not going to pay me to learn and learn a domain this week. Yeah. No, that used to be a lot of fun, didn't it?
0: But now you're they're like you got to be pigeonholed, you got to be a specialist and I'm like but I wanna go learn recommendation systems. I haven't applied them anywhere, but you should pay me to learn so I can apply it for you, please.
1: I think you can still do it, especially with the amount of experience you have. You shouldn't be talking to recruiters. Just ignore them. <laughs> Leave them on red and go directly <laughs> to hiring managers because recruiters have sort of I don't I'm not being mean when I say this, but recruiters have sort of had their arc in technology. And they really have not proven to be effective filters. So we need to change the way higher significantly. I hope tech is the field that starts making forward progress towards something that's more, more responsible and has better outcomes. Because what we're doing right now is just terrible.
0: I mean, I... At one point in time, I think I talked to 150 recruiters in two weeks just because, like. Nope. Nope. And I'm not going to say anything more. I also had two companies reach out to me asking me to pay them to work for me to find me a job. (laughs) And I was like, they want a couple grand or they want you to sign an agreement saying they get 6% of your income for a year. Yeah, nope. And I'm just like, oh, well, that's nice. So based upon my experience, I mean, even talking to hiring managers, sometimes it's because then they hire, they hand you off to, to the recruiter after you talk to the hiring manager mm-hmm. and then you go back to the hiring manager. And sometimes the communication isn't always there. So I don't it's know so what it should be. Hopefully someone makes a really amazing machine learning model in the the job application space. I know there's actually a lot of companies working on it. It's just getting data is hard.
1: Getting past the gatekeeping and sort of the legacy thinking around hiring.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because it, when I talk to hiring managers, the majority of them know exactly who they want to hire almost after the phone screen. They they go from having 10 candidates to maybe two or three, and they say, I, I want to hire one of these three But then they spend another 15 hours of work on each candidate, multiple rounds of interviews and follow-ups and, you know, trying to do the calibrations and everything else. Why don't you just hire based on an early interaction and big qualifications, especially for senior level roles? I mean, bringing somebody in who's been doing data science for eight to ten years and giving them a programming test. Um, for eight to ten years, they have passed a programming test every day because they weren't, hot, they weren't fired. So why are now going to suddenly be able to assess something better than eight years of working in the field can? Really? You're going to get some new information here?
0: know they just want to see how quickly you can create uh the pr curve uh for a uh, random forest from scratch in less than 30 minutes and then put you down because you weren't way fast way. enough and you're like i use a function it's a function in python why, why do I have to do this in 30 minutes? Anyway, yes, I am not scarred from my interview experience. I did not have a company that kept me on for over 10 rounds and at one point in time told me I had to wear dress clothes while working from home. No, I've never had that happen.
1: But- I can tell you I would refuse. I'm I'm firmly entrenched in being a founder and running a business. I wouldn't go back. It's just- no that they could convince me that was a good idea. Just no way.
0: I do hang out with like a lot of founders, but I something inside me doesn't want to be a CEO. Like I don't want to have to be responsible for balancing the budget and coming up with funding. And I still like chasing code around. I'm sure at some point I will get sick of it.
1: <laughs> You'd be surprised. You actually don't have to do a lot of that. If you structure your business properly and don't go the, you know, the crazy VC route where you have to, where where your business model is really subsidized for the first three to five years by someone else's funding. If you build a old school business model Mm -hmm. and come up with a, just a simple operating model to support it, you can bootstrap. It's not as hard as people think it is.
0: And I think the other thing is, like, do I have a big enough network to be able yeah. to find clients is, like, the other thing. You do. Yes. So.
1: They are they are looking for you right now. It's a great time to do freelancing because there are so many opportunities for monetization that don't – not all of them are clients and customers. Some monetization opportunities don't require you to do a whole lot of – uh a cold calling or cold emailing or any of those other things there there are a ton of different business opportunities for people that don't want to live in the corporate world so i highly encourage anyone with data science skills who's tired of it don't go back and burn yourself out again go find something that you're going to love doing you might just do
0: that i mean i i watched a friend bootstrap two businesses simultaneously after having two kids with his wife. And they're like, mm-hmm. both kids are under five mm-hmm. and I'm still like, he has a property management company that he started from nothing. And he also has, um, like a consulting firm for uh, big data solutions. And I'm just like, I don't know how you do it. I'm impressed. And his name's Brian DeLama and he's been on here before too. Um, I, I like him so much i actually usually bring him in when i'm working somewhere and be like he actually will come up with the correct solution um for most of the data science like the the engineering and the big data problem to stream data in real time so but
1: that's what i found is just working in the field if you can actually solve problems not resume solve problems, not talk about solving problems, not whiteboard solve problems, but if you can actually solve problems, you will have work for the rest of your life in the data field. You'll never be fired. It's there's so few who can just come in, get it done. And it works. So few data scientists can do that. And that's, you know, if I was going to say, what's your career opportunity? Just be competent and able to deliver what it is that you say you can do. There are so few that reliably do it. It almost feels like half the field is operating on fortune alone. It just, it worked. Really?
0: (laughs) And if you can be incredibly over the top nice. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, for if you act like, I'm more apt to hire someone if they are nice and willing to learn than if they actually know the content already and they are kind of a little, you know, they got a little ego Uh with them. I'd rather take someone and teach them. And they usually end up being better than me by times. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I mean about
1: as a hiring manager, you just kind of know. You have a sense about who's going to work out. And unfortunately that plays into a ton of biases. So we do need some checks and balances. We do need assessment methods, but we should be watching hiring managers more closely than we were watching candidates because the bias and the bad hires come in because we make some pretty stupid assumptions about what a data scientist looks like and how a data engineer should act and what an MLE engineer's background should be. And how they, I mean, those are the assumptions that lead to bad hires instinctually you can usually tell who's going to work out with a team after one maybe two rounds of interviews you can tell this is a person who will fit into the team fill the role and be capable but we add in this but we have to have the best we have these 18 people we brought 18 in because we want to find the best of these 18 and i think that's where we we kind of got lost when we said the best candidate. No, I just want someone who can do the job. That's it. As soon as I find that person, I'm done. I'm not interviewing five other people to find somebody who can maybe do it better. No, I have other stuff to do. I'm just hiring you. Congratulations. You win. Get to work. Uh, I'll send you a laptop and some some paper to sign and others. I think we get messed up somewhere along the way because that's really it. Can I train this person? Do they know enough that they contribute just to basic tasks from the beginning? And I will train them to fit the entirety of the role. Are they smart? Are they quick when it comes to just learning and picking up concepts? Are they interested in the stuff that we're doing? Do they seem like the team will like them and they will like the team? Good enough. We're done. Are they going to make anyone else quit? No? All right. Good. We're good. All right. You're hired. That's what assessment should be. When a company as big as Google, who has done as much research into hiring as Google has, relies on things like coding exams for calibration, I just think to myself, well, it doesn't surprise me that ChatGPT was calibrated as an L3 software engineer. That doesn't surprise me. In any way, shape, or form. If you want to see the largest indictment of a hiring process. A model calibrated as an L3. (laughs) I mean, the L3, right. I can't feel good. (laughs) I really can't feel good.
0: (laughs) I mean, how does L1 and L2 feel?
1: But I, I, I think. At L1, you know, you're not expecting a lot. L1 is somebody who's an intern. They just graduated. It's not a huge expectation. L2, you know, you're still a junior. L3, though, I mean, you have to be sitting there thinking. So I was really proud of passing the interview, but really, anyone could do that that. If you're Google, you have to ask yourself, if a model can pass our interview process, how good is it?
0: I mean, another question is like, how many hours of their engineers do they spend in the interview process? And wouldn't it have been better instead of spending, I don't know, 10, 15 hours putting someone through a horrible gambit that gives them flashbacks for the rest of their life? <laughs> wouldn't it have been better? Like, because half the time people either get like a sour taste in their mouth for the company. Or, you know, they're just going to keep throwing themselves at the company until the company lets them in. Um, Yep. And it's just like, how many hours of engineers did you, like, there are books on how to crack the coding interview. Like, I shouldn't have to sit and read like a six or 700 page book in order to work for you.
1: Yeah, if I've done a job for five years and I have to take a class to pass your interview, something's broken.
0: And I mean, they just want. what people have to do. People that are obsessed. Yeah,
1: I mean, I watch people who I've watched people do product management roles, software engineering roles. I mean, so it's not just data science; it is other roles too, Mm -hmm. where they've taken entire classes just to be able to calibrate to a certain level at in an interview with Amazon or Google. Or Meta or any one of those, you know, large tech companies. I, 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 that has to tell those tech companies something.
0: I mean, if, why isn't the tech company running the class? Just be like, hey, free sign up because then it's a barrier for entry. You have to have so much money to be able to sign up for the boot camp and you have to come from a certain lifestyle that like you have enough free time that you can sign up for the boot camp. And and even a lot of the recruiters are like, yes, you need to spend in the neighborhood of 20 to 40 hours on top of your full-time job to study, to get through the interview process. And I'm just like, but I have a life. Why wouldn't I just get like a side data science gig instead of wasting that? And I'd feel better at the end of the day, honestly, because I would feel like I actually help someone. But I mean,
1: I'm going to share this and I shouldn't, but. So, we can always cut it yeah no i i'll, I'll, I'll throw this one in why not so uh, as a strategy consultant my interview and i interview with c levels uh, no one no one brings me in you know i don't get a, a manager or anything like that i have to talk with B levels my interview is between one and two rounds the first calls 30 minutes if They really have questions. The second one might be an hour.
0: And it's with the same person. That's the entire
1: process to land a consulting gig at a very high level. Well, then why do I I have to do
0: like 10 hours of interviews? Right.
1: Your CEOs are hiring me after sixty to ninety minutes, sometimes as little as thirty minutes. I get brought in for six-figure contracts after thirty minutes. Why are we doing this to software engineers? Why are we doing this to data scientists? I what mean, is the point?
0: That's a really good I, question. I don't understand. <laughs> I even like openly had a conversation with a hiring manager where I like, they grilled me and they were like, what's the definition of this? What's the definition of that? For an hour, I put up with it for an hour. I was extended an offer and I said, no, thank you. That was an interview that you should be giving someone straight out of grad school. I'm published and I don't want this. No, thank you. But like, you shouldn't be grilling someone who's been in industry for like almost a decade, definitions that like you memorize in grad school and you put on an exam.
1: I got up and left the last job interview I ever had. I just walked out of it. And that was for me, that was the nope, done, I'm never doing this again.
0: The one time I did that, I got offered the job. I was like, I do not want this. And they're like, you are going to take this. And I was like, well, in that case.
1: <laughs> I, I got asked. There were it was a series of really stupid questions. But the one that got me was I was asked for my GPA. And this wasn't straight out of college. I had at that point, let's see, 15 yeah, was just fifteen years of experience in the job that I was interviewing for GPA.
0: What is, how is a GPA even relevant at that point? I mean, I know people are still loyal. I'm, I'm floored to this day. People are still loyal to the school that you graduated from and it's still relevant in the hiring process. And I'm just like, and I'm at table, at like table talking with people and they're from Ivy leagues. I'm not, I'm mm-hmm. from a state school at like, and I'm happy I got there. I got my full ride scholarship. I worked my little butt off, but.
1: Yep. University of Nevada, Reno. I say that with pride. <laughs> University of Nevada, Reno.
0: I mean, it. I know CEOs of tech companies or people who teach data science every single day and they don't have bachelors and they're good at it and they're passionate. Yeah. So, yeah. and why are we still picking people who went to, you know, Ivy Leagues? There's nothing wrong. You have to have a really good high school experience in order to get in and a gambit of other factors. And it's great that you got in, but a decade later, we shouldn't be making hiring decisions based on it. And I've even had someone say, you didn't go to blank. Now, you know, you're not worth being at this company. And I was like, uh, what? And and it was a recruiter. And I was like, okay, fine.
1: I use the words quite frequently when I'm talking to people that are trying to break into the field. And I say, look, you need to explain to companies. You don't need them, but they need you. There are a thousand companies hiring right now. There's one you. If you have experience, there's about a hundred and something thousand thems and one you. Congratulations. If you want to, for the rest of time, never get another candidate, tell one of us something dumb because I'm going to broadcast it. And it's not, you know, (laughs) LinkedIn these days. Wow, you talk about a bad experience with hiring. It goes viral. Companies don't understand that as soon as that happens, they, you know, and this can be somebody who has no following at all. Two or three people will pick it up and it will get circulated across the planet. You'll end up on every site from Twitter to Reddit. You will be dragged for months. I just, I, do they not understand what being offensive or in some cases just oblivious during the hiring process costs them in recruiting costs for the next five years. No one forgets those stories. I mean, I've seen companies become memes overnight because they said something dumb to a customer or an employee on their way out the door. It's just, how do they not have this figured out? Be overly nice, not just as a candidate, but also as a company and as a hiring manager. Just be good to people.
0: I mean, I don't understand because like, even if I don't go out and I say, hey, this company said this to me and it was really awful and I cried, um, I'm going to have a bad feeling about that company and I may or may not have deleted all my social media off of that company based upon that experience and I encouraged everyone who knew me personally to do the same. Um, But...
1: There are companies that will never get... A mid-to-top tier professional in one of the more niche technical fields, because their reputation is trash. There are grad school programs too. I don't think college understand this. There are grad school programs too, where there are a couple of professors who are, let's say, not the most appropriate when they go to conferences, and those will never get top tier students again because everybody knows like the only people that don't know are the professors and the deans (laughs) of the colleges it's like they're the only ones who don't know what's going on everyone else avoids them like the plague and there are top schools that have trashed reputations just because of basic lack of dignity or decency and we're going to continue to see this trend. It's not like the next generations are more tolerant of shenanigans than mine is. It's getting way less tolerant. So when people look at me and they say, wow, you have a very different attitude on hiring. I'm thinking, my friend, let me introduce you to the generations after me. If you think I'm wild, it gets worse.
0: I mean, I was talking to someone in their early 20s and I was telling them some of the stuff that like I went through and they're like, they won't even upload a resume. They're like, I do not have a resume. I will not upload Mm -hmm. a resume. I am good at what I do. And I'm like, you know, she's in her early 20s and she is good at what she does. And she refuses to even make a resume. They ask for a resume. Mm -hmm. She's like, well, you're obviously not someplace I want to work. I'm like, I have a CV and it's five pages. How old am I? (laughs)
1: I don't, I gave up on my resume. 2014 was the last time I sent a resume out. I will never do it again. I, I'm done.
0: But you come with like a reputation and that word of mouth, that's what brings mm-hmm. in the customers and your actions and your words match up and you come through with the product and everything that you say you would. So you don't yeah. need to do a resume because ev- your experience with other people is the resume. But usually like, like people work. in their early career, a resume is, you know, something you should keep. And I was just shocked that, you know, the no. generation of me is like, yeah, we don't do resumes. And I was like LinkedIn. And they're like, not really. And I'm like, what do you do? And I don't recall what she said, but I was just like shocked kind of. Because she said There's she doesn't apply, she doesn't different. have a resume. And...
1: Yeah. There's an entirely different job market out there where it's a secondary market. And I teach, actually used to teach recruiters how to find candidates on secondary marketplaces. Because we're having, anytime you get into a niche role, you can't hire for it. I, I, I don't, it's funny, but I, there is the majority of candidates don't realize that all of these roles are sitting there. And you know how they, you look at LinkedIn, oh, it's only been available for two days, three, no. There are roles out there that have been unfilled for a year, sometimes longer. There are companies that are bumping salaries to really stupid levels because they need somebody who can do this thing before the system that the person who just left was maintaining collapses on them and takes their business southwest down with them (laughs) so i'm sorry
0: i didn't hear anything
1: (laughs) i just yelled out a direction my mistake (laughs) but there are companies who can't hire the people that they need to maintain their wells fargo legacy systems and i know someone who's a
0: solutions architect at wells fargo whoops
1: so you know you know the insiders yes
0: (laughs) they yeah I'm not gonna recount. That their
1: no one touches because they're <laughs> frightened.
0: Yes, and he he has expressed that like you just do the what you're asked. You don't try to go above and beyond and do more because you don't know what you're gonna break when you're trying to be a good person. Yep, and it's I was just. And
1: it's old. Yeah, yeah. There's stuff at Wells Fargo that was programmed by people like me, except in my 20s, very early 20s. <laughs>
0: It's still I used to this day. I was that
1: good in my very <laughs> early 20s. And by that, I mean I was really bad. Part of it was I didn't know any better and the field, just software engineering in general, we didn't know any better. But part of it was not being forward-looking yet and thinking that this would not be maintained for 25 years.
0: Well, I mean, when was GitHub made, like... Yeah, version controlling code. When, was that, when did that start being a thing? Like, uh, when I got on the scene, that wasn't a thing.
1: No, it was 2000. I was doing source control and, and versioning and that sort of thing. We had our own <laughs> server. Like, we had our own. It was janky. No one touched it. You know, talking about things no one touched. Yeah, the source control server. No one touched it. We didn't even walk into the same room, except for there was one person who could touch it. Nobody else could touch that thing. But you know, of course, everybody who was a senior engineer in their 30s and 40s walked in there and thought they knew what they were doing. They'd break it, and this guy would come in and you know attempt to. <laughs> I thought one day I thought he was going to fight someone, who, who went in there and broke the broke the build server, and I, there was going to be a fight. It was intense, but yeah, that, that's it's been a thing forever. But let me tell you, Git as much as anybody complains about Git way easier than what we used to have to do (laughs) way easier
0: i'm not filing a complaint about git i'm just saying that like when i was at a place where code should have been version controlled we definitely we we weren't using git we weren't using any version control it was like well someone has it on their hard drive maybe they can give it to you and it's you know an older version and yeah no yep
1: yep. (laughs) yeah my laptop's been source control before been there yeah. especially and in startups oh my God.
0: it was Early not a startup
1: 10 startups
0: it was not a startup it was a research facility
1: oh yeah no that's yeah that's academia no.
0: well but the same things practices. had to be passed on and modified and run every X amount of time to get and it had to be modified and updated and which Oh. yeah and then someone retired worst and took practices you know and then the data went away or the the code went away or yeah
1: i can tell you between government and research academia worst practices oh i've seen what something. about
0: government research facility what about that oh, what I've about that company thing. that isn't might the government
1: you know, government research isn't that an oxymoron I thought, we, I thought we established those two don't go together.
0: I didn't publish all my papers at a government research facility.
1: So you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, your findings don't agree with my opinions. Can you right. redo them, please?
0: Or, you know, you're a master's degree. You shouldn't be publishing your findings. Disagree with my findings. Um, I can't believe they're letting you publish. Um, that was never said to me, ever.
1: No, no, of course not. No. No, I couldn't see that.
0: I literally wrote a paper about Bayes' law, you know, like probability A, probably B, the probability of A and B intersecting. And I was told that that law doesn't apply to their problem. So I wrote a paper about how Bayes' law applies to everything. It got published. And that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah.
1: I've heard some things. Yeah. No, I've, I've... yes, I've heard some things too. I don't know, I mean, you sound like you've had some war stories too. I don't know how people get out of it without some serious like mental trauma and scars. (laughs) I do not know how people escape the work world without the people that are happy in tech jobs. For me, I look at them and I just go, I need to learn something from you. Because they'll tell me stories and I'm thinking, I would be in therapy. And I'm not, you know, I'm not in, I'm in Gen X. So I was on the playground being, you know, people said things on playgrounds when I was growing up that would get you banned from 4chan. So it's not like I had a, you know, the sheltered life, but some of the things you get told in engineering and in just data science and the academic fields is just, really, why would you say that to another human being? let alone having people that talk about it, you know, being a a monthly occurrence where they're belittled in the work world. I know I'm supposed to be selling data science as a field and I'm really doing a terrible job as an ambassador here, but this is kind of the reality, isn't it?
0: I mean, I have story after story. The best thing I can say is to forget because I love the analytics. I love the research. I love, love, love what I do. Working from home is amazing because if Something gets to be too much. You can accidentally leave a call. But I mean like I have story after story like the CEO came to me and told me he wanted to divorce his wife and I informed him he needed to go to couples therapy and to please leave me alone. My career subsequently was hurt from that experience. How dare I? I can I have story after story, but I yeah, do not want to go there, but I love what I do and it gives really good work-life balance when you get to work from home. So if you have a math brain, it's amazing. Otherwise, I don't know what I would do. I'd probably be miserable doing something else.
1: You'd be doing what?
0: Anything else. Something else that doesn't involve analyzing data and like playing around with spreadsheets. I'd probably be miserable. Like I I fell into it yeah. and I like it, so.
1: Yeah, I really love what I do. And I'm fortunate now with the the company to be able to pick clients and decide who I want to work for and pick good situations. I mean, that doesn't mean that I, I don't experience my share of dysfunction and a little bit of crazy from time to time. The C-suite, that's another level. <laughs> The board, like you think the C-suite's nuts until you meet the board. Then you go, Oh, so that's why the C-suite's dysfunctional because there it is. And then I realize what kind of pressure everyone's under from investors who, if you think, Professors are wild. Investors say wild stuff. They are... But they hand you a couple
0: million dollars and then they say the insane things, right?
1: They don't just... No, like before, during, and after. (laughs) It's wild. And it's not just VCs. VCs get a bad rap. But traditional institutional investors are weird. There's a good... I would say the majority, overwhelming majority of them, straight-laced, middle of the road, they just want to get a good return. They want companies that are well run, they want leaders that they can trust. They want certainty and stability. They want to know what they're getting. All reasonable stuff. They they call you once a quarter to make sure everything's on track and they truly leave leadership and the board alone. But there's that minority and they come out of the woodwork in times like this where they will they are just weird. They make ridiculous demands. They say crazy things in public. It gets picked up on by cable news shows.
0: (laughs) Are we referring to a specific event?
1: One? No, three. And I can name like three of them in the last month.
0: I don't watch cable, so I am...
1: Oh, no, Bob Iger got dragged back into Disney because Bob Chapek was doing some interesting accounting when it came to how Disney Plus was reporting costs and revenue. So there were, so there was a, have you ever seen Friday? Remember the movie Friday with Ice Cube? There's a famous line from Friday. How do you get fired on your day off? Mr. Chapek, how do you get fired on a Sunday from Disney? How how do you do that? I would just like to know if you, if you'd like to come on a podcast with me, I would love to hear the answer to that, but I'm sure your NDA is breathtaking. So I'm never going to find out, but yeah, fired on a Sunday. So Bob Iger comes in, you know, literally here I come to save today, comes in to save Disney from investors who are outside with torches and pitchforks. And he starts, you know, trying to clean house. He's doing the evaluations and the audits and he's looking for ways to save money and make the parks more friendly to customers. And he's, I mean, he's cleaning up so many different messes and in comes this activist investor who is questioning somebody who's, really respected as one of the greatest CEOs in Disney's history, questions his capabilities, and just says some things in his public read on several news channel letter, open letter to the board. It's just one of those, really? I mean, even Bob Iger can't get a break. That guy can't get a break. (laughs) It's insane. Just insanity. Investors are weird sometimes. Like I said, majority of them, normal middle of the road, just want to return. But there are some of them that are just oh out there.
0: So I'm sure you have your fair share of personal experiences aside from news covers, but I guess you can't talk about that either.
1: Um, what can I talk about? Because the nice thing here is if I say something and I don't mention any names, no one's going to get angry because then they would have to admit they did that. So there is, let me think about that. Let me see if I can find wild stories from investors. I was on an investor pitch where I'm trying to think of the right way to put this. They essentially wanted this company to pivot into doing a completely different product. And so two minutes into the presentation. One of the analysts, who wasn't even a partner, he's an analyst at the firm, throws out kind of an idea, you know, have you thought about getting into this vertical? And one of the partners spent an hour and a half browbeating the CEO and the CTO about why they didn't do something completely different with their company. And it was, yeah, it was a good hour. It had to be at least an hour of just beating them up saying, hey, you should do this other business. You should do this other business. You should do, but that wasn't the kicker. Like that wasn't the weird part. The weird part was a week later, that same partner called and asked them if they would do a presentation because he liked their company, liked their idea and was thinking about investing. We thought, oh, it must be, you know, that person's admin or that person's, you know, analyst or somebody else. We just didn't realize, it. no, was same dude. Completely forgotten. Was. So they sent the CFO to do the pitch. CFO got a $500,000 check, exactly the same pitch deck. It was just one of those, wait. And it was, I, I think he pitched like three weeks later. So it was maybe three to four weeks after this just absolutely inappropriate hour of talking down to the founder and the CTO, the CFO makes exactly the same pitch and gets a half a million dollar check. That's, yeah, that's VC. It's just so strange.
0: was the same human, right? Same human. (laughs) Were they of sound mind and body?
1: I don't think that's possible given what I saw.
0: Were they just under an insane amount of stress and they forgot where they were at and they were too afraid to back down from what they...
1: I have no idea. Literally, you can't think that somebody like that is in their right mind. But then again, this person is getting wealthy people to give them large sums of money to invest so... I, they can't be that far off base, can they?
0: I mean, how sound mind are insanely wealthy people that have billions of dollars?
1: You're not wrong. Not wrong.
0: I know a few of those, not billionaires, but millionaires, and they always lament that they don't have any true friends and can't truly trust anyone. And I'm just like, could only imagine what it would be like to begin with a B billion instead. You know, and why do we chase this isolation with money? But anyway, that's what they usually lament to me about when I talk to them.
1: It's interesting. I think people want things because they don't understand what happens when you get them. And that's, the, that's usually the problem is it sounds great and then you stumble your way into it and all of a sudden you realize all the, oh, there was other stuff. I like quoting the Dr. Strange movie where they say the warnings come after the spells. They really should come before. And I think it's really in almost every job I've ever had, every promotion I've ever been given, everything I've ever learned or every cool thing I've ever built, the warnings were always after. And they really needed to be, I don't know, maybe written up up front somewhere.
0: I mean, isn't that how like most like, (laughs) Prescription medications in the US are like, try this drug, look, your life will be better. There's sunshines and rainbows. And then at the end there's someone talking really quickly with all the side effects. And you're like, I have no idea what you're saying. They're like blah, blah, blah. You're like, that sounds bad, but I have no idea what it is. But that's kind of like how life is. Like, I got a promotion. Now I'm in charge of five people. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> side effects may include having to lay off your entire team during a recession. <laughs>
0: oh don't joke I was somewhere and I think they did like a 75% layoff of the engineering staff
1: yeah that was just brutal
0: Uh, the guy who came in he was online working 6am until like 11 at night and in his free time was making like book clubs and stuff for everyone to go to so we would interact on top of being amazing on top of like doing everything he got laid off and I'm like what hope is there for the rest of us if the person who does all the extracurriculars so
1: the last job that i had where i got laid off in 2012 from in 2010 i won every award the company had i was promoted to run an entire group (laughs) they they didn't just give me a team they were like here is a cross-functional team of people that do everything for three different major product lines you were just on a product line that shipped and made in its first year almost 100 million so two years later i got laid off it's yeah corporate worlds like that and it always has been it it does not seem to be willing to change and that's depressing a great reason to think about entrepreneurship because if you build a business you can build something better for people It doesn't have to be a multi-billion dollar company. Mine never will come even close. I will never approach that number because I don't, I kind of know what comes with it. And I can't wrap my head around becoming that sort of a leader. It's just not what I want to do. And not because it's unethical or anything. It's just, I don't want to have to commoditize people that way. I don't want to have to commoditize my customers that way. I want to have a bit of control over projects. And once you scale, you lose that. You just take anyone who's willing to give you business versus selecting the people that I can provide the most value to. So there's, there's just disadvantages. And if you start your own thing, you have the opportunity to create something that's better. It will limit how much you can scale it to, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I will never own my own jet and I don't want to.
0: But I mean, the impact that's on the climate, even if you did own your own jet, like.
1: I'll be dead by the time climate apocalypse happens. I'm good.
0: (laughs) I worked in alternative energy. Don't say these things to me.
1: (laughs) No, I and, you know, I think the irony is all of the people who are saying, oh, I'll be dead by the time that happens. We haven't been keeping up with medicine because it will keep us alive long enough to live with the results of our stupid decisions. We're going to be kept alive to deal with some of the implications in a way that other generations never have. So I mean, I I think we need to clean up some messes.
0: I think the only thing we can't really replace is the brain. But I mean, we're working on doing like the... There's plenty of different other than Elon's Neuralink. There's other competitors to it. So at some point hooking your brain to another humans or to a computer or directly bringing the internet to your brain will be possible. And like, there's a whole discipline of the human, or what is it like human machine interface, but like directly into the brain. And it. at what point, like, do you stop being human? Do you start being like a cyborg? Like after you've replaced so much, like what happens if we take this consciousness and we put it inside of a computer, is that still then? What if you're still alive and their consciousness is in a computer and your consciousness can connect to the internet and have experiences? Which one's the real if you? my
1: consciousness in a computer can get a job, I'm down.
0: Have you seen the TV show Severance?
1: Severance. No. Oh, no. I've heard of it. No, yeah, no. I haven't, I haven't seen it.
0: So uh, it, you basically have two consciousness trapped in one body. And when you go to work, one consciousness is aware. And when you leave work, it's a different consciousness. So that way there's no shared experiences. Which, I mean, with some of my data science stuff, that'd probably be bad. But, like, which one's the real you is kind of, like, the question it begs to ask. Neither. I mean, both of them inhabit the same body. So
1: No, once you duplicate yourself, there's no longer a real me. It'd be like asking which twin's the real one. Well, neither.
0: Well, I mean, there's plenty of identical twins. Are either of them real? Right.
1: But, I mean, if you tried to say which one of them is the real, it wouldn't work, would it? You know, if you say, you know, what did you have? Oh, I had twins. Okay, well, which one's the real one? Well, neither.
0: You try saying that to a kid and see what happens.
1: No, but I mean, think about it. It you it was it would be like asking which one's the real one, which one's the copy? If you're twins, which one's the real one, which one's the copy?
0: I mean, scientifically we can answer that, which embryo split off from the other embryo and which one's the copy, but their experiences which one has the more valid experience and is more representative? Like
1: Neither. I mean there's not like an original and a copy. It's now too distinct. So there isn't a real one. So then your They're consciousness
0: both. on the computer has rights? Yep.
1: This is where it gets messy. Yes. Yeah, the the twin argument is and it, it, it's the this is what you'll end up hearing when we have to go through and litigate this, and we're not very far away from that, sadly, that you have two versions of the same person, the same memories of the same individual, which one is real and which one is the copy. And you'll hear the argument. It's like asking with two twins, which one's the real and one, which one's the copy.
0: But needed. what if you just want to, like, back up your brain in case anything happens?
1: Yeah. Is each uh, one of those a full tricky
0: human that, you ha- that has rights? That has very
1: tricky. Doesn't that brain have rights, the backup? Doesn't each backup copy have rights?
0: And then where is the line between, like, well, I mean, we have these large language models... Are they sentient? I mean, you can point a large language model at a large language model and they'll talk, but does it have feelings? Well, when does that large language model actually become sentient? Like, we're not there yet. I'm not arguing that we are, but like, when is is it pass the Turing test? When does it have feelings and desires?
1: I think it's interesting. We look at it from that perspective. Like, we are going to somehow synthetically recreate ourselves, but that's not how it will work. We will copy ourselves first. And that is going to run into a lot of these very messy challenges because a copy of ourselves is an easier pathway to something that has intelligence and generalizes.
0: But I mean, even now, like one of my, someone I know made AI Jordan Peterson and we can call up Jordan Peterson on my phone right now and talk to AI Jordan Peterson and hold a conversation with him. Um, Yep. But I wouldn't say that that's Jordan Peterson, or that's even a copy of Jordan Peterson. It's just a large language model acting like Jordan Peterson, and it's not sentient.
1: Yep. But we're going to get a whole lot better at copying. Yes. It's not going to be copying from you know data and act actions alone, or recordings, or or any of those types of things. It's, I mean, that's where Neuralink's going. That's where a lot of these you know human brain in- or machine brain interface human intelligent machine intelligent interface technologies are going is making that copy. And the better the copy, the better the functionality and the more realistic the the duplication becomes. That's where we're going to get into some interesting territory because that's going to happen faster than we'll, you know, really develop models to simulate intelligence I think one technology will move forward faster than the other one And I think that's like I said that's I think where we get into the ethical questions is when we get very high quality copies Uh, then what does that copy have rights
0: I mean that copy probably doesn't want to be deleted right but there's a newer better version so we Uh, would you
1: do that to yourself
0: would I delete myself? I mean, isn't that what death is at the end of the day?
1: Well, I, I, yeah, yeah. Well, yes.
0: There's a time stamp of you're only, there's only this amount of time. I don't know what it is, but probably like, you know, we'll extend it using medicine and other stuff, but there's only a finite amount of time. And I mean, I guess that's what makes being like human special. You don't live forever. So each moment's special in a way, but...
1: I I feel like that's not a 100% true. Uh, You know, if we started to live for a 1,000 years or 2,000 years, would we stop being human? No, we would just evolve into a different type of human, but we would still be special, right?
0: I mean, it's just like the passing of time, like this Monday wouldn't seem special because I only have a finite amount of Mondays versus I have an infinite amount of Mondays and... You know, when am I going to retire if I live to be like 10,000? Will I ever get that period in my life where I stop working?
1: If we are good enough to survive for 10,000 years, I hope we have replaced the construct of work and money and economies. I hope we've gone beyond economies by the time we get to (laughs) living to 10,000 years and we've come up with something More. more important to do with our time.
0: You would think, but we live in a capitalistic society where we have, it's stratified. We like our little stratification, people at the top try to, you know, reduce people coming up and, and so like, do I think if we live 10,000 years, it would be rainbows and butterflies and, you know, I mean, we can't even agree on universal healthcare in the U.S. to like, be like, yes, as a human, you should have the right to go see a doctor if your arm's falling off. Like, that seems reasonable.
1: So everything that we have from a system, a lot of the things that you're talking about, the reason why they exist is because we have finite resources. So we have created a lot of systems and hierarchies to manage zero-sum games and to do some sort of semi-fair or at least acceptable way of distributing finite resources. We won't always be constrained like that.
0: I, the thing that's fascinating me and I don't understand it right now, and I probably should go sit down and research it is they're doing fusion. so like making mini suns. And Mm -hmm. so one plus one now equals three. So Mm -hmm. I I need to sit down and do this because this is kind of like, I used to work in nukes. So I'm kind of interested and really knowledgeable about this area and I haven't sat down, but that doesn't follow the law of physics, the input and the output. We didn't balance like stoichiometry. We're not balancing the equation. And if that is true, we can make infinite amount of energy. Mm -hmm. Then resources are no longer scarce,
1: not infinite. Remember it's a mass to energy. So there's always a trade off,
0: but it's, the amount that you put in and the amount that you get out is different.
1: The amount of energy you put into creating the reaction is less than the amount of energy that the reaction itself creates.
0: So it's still balanced. Cause I was talking with someone that looked at it and they were saying that you put in two units and you get out three. And I was just like, that doesn't make sense. You have to follow stoichiometry, the size of the equation have to be balanced. And they're like, no, they're not balanced. There was like, What witchcraft, Uh, are you like pulling something out of the fifth dimension to do this?
1: From an energy standpoint, it's balanced. Yeah. Uh, Or excuse me, from an energy uh, expenditure standpoint, from our side, like how much energy we put into it. It is imbalanced. We put two units of energy in, we get three units of energy out. But it is the stuff that we're using that manages... It, it, under the covers, someone is paying for that third unit. And it's a, from what I understand about fusion, it's a mass to energy co- conversion at some level, but I don't, I, I'm not going to pretend to really get deep into how fusion is doing that or what we're leaving behind, like what particle we're mining to create that energy from whatever we're slapping together. I don't, yeah. I don't,
0: I, and yeah, it goes back to I need to sit down and look at it. What I was told in the conversations I had previously was that th- two units go in and three come out. There's nothing consumed in it. I was like, that is magical. How are mm-hmm. they performing the, that magic? But what you're saying that they're yep. providing matter makes sense. Yep. makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I was like, I, the laws of physics haven't been broken. Thank goodness. <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah uh, that
1: wouldn't work. I mean, even a black hole has to pencil out at some point. I mean, Hawking's. If Hawking's is right, black holes even have to pencil out at some point. So it's, yeah, I don't think they're breaking laws of physics. I think there's, there, there's mass there somewhere that is evaporating to our energy. So it's not limitless, but that's a pretty big conversion. So we would have to go through a lot of energy in order for that to be something that would run out. And if I remember right, I don't know. I don't know what they're using, but if it's something like hydrogen, you know, just one of the many variations and flavors, then we got a little bit of that. But there's there's some of that around that we can probably use.
0: I mean, isn't all of the water two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, or did I miss some?
1: Yeah, no, so, I mean, I, we got a little bit of that. We got. Think, some that I think up. it's more than a We're little. Able to use that.
0: But I mean even in nuclear reactors you're supposed to like use heavy water so you have to get isotopic water to put the rods in and that's difficult to even get to that point. So at least some of the yeah. some of the reactors, not all of the reactors. Um, but creating that or creating like the level of refinement that you need in the hydrogen um, is difficult.
1: Yeah. For me that whole humans don't seem capable of keeping water going over rods. You know if you look at every major nuclear disaster it came down to really we can't just keep water flowing over rods like that's that's that was the problem every single time was we couldn't keep the water flowing so we should find the commonality here don't stop the water maybe we should have maybe i don't know two or three redundant systems that continue to throw water at the rods and that the same thing that happens every time water stops going over nuclear reactors happens again can we can we agree? Maybe there should be, I don't know, more than one pipe. Uh, call me crazy. So Maybe the engineering me is nuts.
0: So each system in a nuclear reactor has two other backups. I've written nuclear regulatory documents and almost all my publications are in nukes. But I, I mean, get to write about fun things, and I I'm hundred percent sure it's like public. Well, I guess it might not be public knowledge. I probably shouldn't be like, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are reasons water sources quit uh being taken in, even when it has a tertiary a three three system, but I can talk about the fact that all the failure events go back to a human error, and so I was building models to describe human error and the likelihood for human error. But even like if you look at a nuclear, like if you go into a nuclear control room, everything's analog. It looks like you're in the 60s. Everything is written text, and it's in a binder that someone has to go pull down and follow da da. da, da, da. The only great thing about nuclear control manuals, it, or nuclear control like manuals, is that the dictionary. So the amount of variability in the language—it's written at like a third-grade level intentionally. So that way, like even people who don't speak English, it's hoped that if they happened upon a nuclear reactor, they would be able to understand. <laughs> but why can't we keep water over the rods? It's difficult. No people.
1: Why can't people? That's where I started. Why can't people seem to keep? maybe we should have, like I said, two or three different systems that help people keep the water flowing over the nuclear reactor. I mean, I get it. Maybe at Three Mile Island, it was a brand new thing. I got it. Okay. Chernobyl, maybe we didn't broadcast the Three Mile Island thing widely enough. Maybe everybody didn't see that it was water. But I mean, come on. After that, we should pretty much be done. We should know water reactor important. People should really kind of know that. And the fact that the really well-trained people that run these still seem to have some struggles with keeping water flowing, just boggles my mind. Boggles. I, I can't, I don't get it. Why are we this dumb? Because we are, and I'm not saying them, like we, me included. Why are we like this? Why do we somehow devolve in these situations of crisis? to forget just common sense stuff like water, reactor.
0: Water. I mean, they didn't fix Three Mile Island until the next set of engineers came in. And so the original set of engineers kept just doing the same action over and over again, and they kept following the manual perfectly. But they forgot to do one little thing consistently. And so, yes, the the rods became uncovered. And in Chernobyl, I don't recall the exact details of that, But in Fukushima, it was a battery failure that occurred. And I think if I recall correctly, they let the ocean into the reactor in order to cover the rods, but that destroyed the reactor. And yeah, it's just, the other thing is that you have a closed loop system. So the water that touches the reactor, you don't want that getting out into the world because that water is now contaminated and radiated. And so if you add more water to it, and that steam or anything in that loop. So you usually have like a two circular system. So like one water, that water transfers heat in another loop. And that loop actually turns the turbine or a tertiary system where there's like a loop in the middle and then the turbines at the end and another closed system. And so the problem is, is that any interaction with this closed loop that has the control rods or the nuclear rods in it, Everything in there is contaminated. Anyone that goes in there is contaminated. Like just to the nth degree, like even if you don't go anywhere near it, they have to completely like destroy the lab coat that was there and go through obnoxious amounts of training, like no chewing gum, because that gives you extra radiation, like that you don't want to think about. Like if you are anywhere near like any sort of radiation, like what you need to do, like you should probably shave off your hair and. You know, get all everything out of your body and all your clothes because all of it's radiated and it's making you more sick and things you never want to think about. about <laughs> yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. Radiation. Not messing with that or in any way, shape, or form.
0: how after you're radiated, you feel like, oh, I was radiated. I feel sick. And then you suddenly get better. And then it happens. And it's just like, yes, if you're getting better, you're, t- you're not actually getting better. It's like, oh. Anyway, sorry. Sad, sad, sad topic. Tangent. So chat no, GPT. How do you feel about chat GPT?
1: As long as it doesn't irradiate me right now, I'm pretty good now.
0: I don't think anyone's <laughs> given it the capability to, to interact with a nuclear control room yet. We'll see.
1: Yep. You know, I, I'll be honest. And I think this is the interesting, the interesting part of the chat GPT question. Is if so? I don't know who's running for president next time around. Dude. Let's just like candidate B. Put how long till we get like Chat G P candidate C? And I am not being facetious. I would think about voting for it.
0: Well, I mean, I it doesn't it- have a sordid past. There's no like unknown thing that's going to come up. Probably isn't going to insult your mom in any capacity. Well, you never
1: know, though. I mean, you remember Trey? Remember Microsoft's Trey? It insulted a whole lot of moms. And recently, Meta dropped one that just insulted people's intelligence. So, I mean, it has some serious flaws that are likely hidden in there. And more than most people, you and I know that. We know that under the covers, there's probably some really ugly skeletons behind every model we're going to release for the next few years. Yep. Knowing that, I would still definitely think it over. I would give it some level of consideration. It would not be ridiculous on its face.
0: I mean, if I was given the ability to like test the vector embedding space to look at the distance between certain keywords to make sure it wasn't biased, Mm -hmm. Um, and or like you know it was published that, hey, we did all these key indicators and it came back being not biased and it was open, like open knowledge about what it was trained on. Yeah, I would say that that would be like an intelligent choice. It's not like we have that level of visibility into any human running for office. I don't know how their mom and dad raised them, what, like how far their different words in their brain are spaced. In theory, a large language model is more transparent and easier to trust than a presidential candidate. I can't believe I'm saying that.
1: That's what I mean, though. Isn't that kind of indicative? And it's not just the U.S. I'd be willing to bet you if you went to every country that has democratic elections and say, "Okay, here's what we got. You've got, you know, whether you have five parties or two parties or eight parties, whatever that your potential system is. I am going to, for prime minister, for premier, for chancellor, for whatever your country happens to have, president, I am going to put forth your standard, the most likely candidates from your party and candidate GPT. I would be willing to bet that candidate GPT would not be the lowest voted for amongst a stack ranking of, of parties. I'm, I don't think it would be the least popular.
0: So I guess another question is, like, who owns... I mean, I know who owns ChatGPT, but, like, in theory, in these elections, who owns this a, this large language model?
1: Who owns our politicians now?
0: Well, I mean, I think they should get NASCAR jackets and clearly have visible symbols, I think that would be better. I think all of the Senate and the House, you know, that way I know why they voted that way on that bill. But, like, who's owning that model? Like, am I going to be, like, basically hiring OpenAI to run the country?
1: I'm hiring Exxon, Shell, Facebook, Meta, um, Alphabet. I mean, I'm hiring these people now. They're the ones who lobby and contribute to the campaigns as it is now. They're the people with access. They're involved in writing policy. So don't we all have the same problems? It would just be far more transparent if we had candidate GPT versus what we have now, which is a deeper level of obfuscation for exactly the same problems.
0: And then another question is, is it going to be like adversarially trained, meaning like experience based on its interaction, on the questions that are asked on the campaign trail? Will that be incorporated back into it and will it learn? Are those experiences all going to be publicly available?
1: Will it benefit from uh, models like Meta's recommender system for ad targeting? Mm, mm. wouldn't it be a better candidate and give better speeches if it had access to that recommender system?
0: Would it just make speeches that don't really commit to anything because it understands that it could be everything to everyone if it doesn't commit to a viewpoint?
1: Uh, Don't we have that now?
0: But still, at the end of the day, you should you go to a candidate's web page, and on the web page, it clearly says, usually the top button issues, like, I'm this way. So even if they give the most political answer.
1: Right, but they don't follow it. They will <laughs> say, I'm going to do this, and then don't. I mean, at least with ChatGPT, I would get my own personalized version of the web page that made me happy. That I would agree with. It would customize <laughs> and auto-generate. Oh, that's Vin. Vin, hey, guess what? Like you, (laughs) I am not a fan of high taxes on small businesses.
0: wonder why. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Really? Tell me more. Especially for consulting companies in the data science and machine learning space. You know, I am from the data science. I mean, don't we already have much of this right now? We ask a lot of ethical questions. This is where I'm going. We ask a lot of ethical questions about data, machines, models, and we don't like the answers that we accept from people. We hold Tesla's autopilot to a ridiculously high standard of safety. I have been on the freeways after football games are over on Sunday the level of safety i would feel knowing everyone had tesla's autopilot turned on would be higher than what i am feeling when it when i know the state of most of the people who are around me who are driving and weaving in and out of traffic at speeds that are unsafe for people with reflexes in their 20s and when they slam on their brakes for absolutely no reason. And I drive past them. I see, Oh, you're about 70. Huh? I mean, we hold co-pilots or excuse me, the autopilot to a very high standard, but we let I've seen some of the people that pass their driver's license tests and get, get behind the wheel. We have a different level of competency. Shouldn't we just be happy with the fact that we could save a ton of lives and accept the fact that it will fail as frequently as people do?
0: I mean, I've been in a Tesla with autopilot and when in the early days. It was bad. Yeah, I mean, I was the passenger and I learned when they turn autopilot on, I should close my eyes. That way, if we get into an accident. I won't get as injured because you get injured when you make your body rigid because you brace for impact. Uh, But now it's better at navigating high traffic than I am, especially in new cities. And it is a lot more competent and, you know, can go a lot faster if you ignore the max speed on it and all that fun stuff. Um, But it's still like when image recognition was equal to humans we're like okay yeah that's cool but then when like Mm -hmm. image recognition got significantly better than humans we're like whoa so maybe it's the same thing with driving it has to or maybe everyone just needs to get self-driving and have all the cars talk to each other so they can all synchronize
1: wouldn't that be nice yeah that would be awesome (laughs) I, i that's the way i look at models we're beating chat gpt up because it's wrong sometimes yeah me too People ask me for advice all the time. And I think the most important lesson that I've learned is when to shut up. It took me longer in life to learn when I shouldn't give advice, even though it sounds like I could. I've learned through hard lessons in just in advisory roles. There are things I shouldn't do. Things I shouldn't say, times I should not chime in. There are times where I have to just come out and say, I, the advice I would give you would be no better than you guessing. And so I'm not going to give you advice in this situation and resist the pressure to give bad, potentially bad advice and sound like an expert. But most people don't have that. It, you really have to be old in most cases and made as many mistakes as I have before you get to the point where you know when to shut up. And I still frequently put my foot in my mouth and have to apologize and say, wait, I was wrong. My, my mistake, I was wrong. Don't, don't listen to what I said last week, do this instead.
0: But that's so honorable, like ChatGPT doesn't reach out to me and say, hey, I made a mistake last week. I have an updated answer. Whereas you as a human remember that interaction, reach out and say, hey, don't listen to me you have honor, you have integrity. Also, there's some humans who don't have honor and integrity and don't do that. So, I mean...
1: Look it up. They don't do the follow-up. They assume they were right. I mean, smart people assume they're right. And more times than not, that's a good assumption.
0: That's why they got... That's why they're smart. I hate that word, smart. Oh, you're so smart. I'm like... No, I, I just know some things about the specific area over here. I don't know stuff over there.
1: I tell people I'm not smart. I'm just really good looking. And so you look at me and listen. You know, it's been proven in studies that stupid people sound smart if they're attractive. And so for my for me, obviously, it's because I'm attractive. It can't be. <laughs> intelligence. It's because I'm just amazingly good looking. Because I'm smart now.
0: I'd like to caveat that with. No offense, you're a man. The number of times I've been, as a lady, being attractive, being told, well, you're attractive, you should be in sales. What are you doing data science for? Or just like, I've literally had someone repeat word for word what I said to a client, but it was a man in a masculine tone. Therefore, it was received. So you kind of also have to be, at least in certain senses, in certain fields, be the correct gender for it to be received. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, is what well.
1: No, it's true. And that's, the, that's kind of the sad thing is I got into uh, very high-level meetings when I was in my early 30s. But from a genetic standpoint, I looked mid-20s. And while it was awesome, but until I hit 40, I had almost no gray hair at all whatsoever. That was great from one respect. But I looked a lot like I was still 20-something. I would sit down with C-levels who would listen to nothing I said. And when my gray hair finally came in, I said, oh, thank God. People will finally take me serious.
0: So and did you get no reverse sure. just for man's to add the gray?
1: I, I mean, I was thinking about it. It's really how crazy it is. I looked like I was too young to be intelligent. And I was treated like I couldn't possibly be raped. Why? Uh, he's a kid. <laughs> but that was, that was a challenge for me, starting my business. And for the first few years, I didn't look old enough. Showed up and there were, oh, no, 31 tops, no way. You can't know what you're talking about. And finally, this thing, this saved me right there. That little streak made me look old enough. Finally. And I can't tell you how it's everywhere. The perception and bias problems are everywhere. And that's sad career, you know, just really sad career reality.
0: Yes, it is. Well, um, do you have any overarching things that you would like to add, or any wrap-up thoughts that you would like to include?
1: This has been a fun conversation. I mean, we've gone everywhere. We talked about nuclear reactors. Yes,
0: which is a common topic with me.
1: <laughs> What's that?
0: Nuclear reactors is a common topic for me.
1: Though. Oh, really?
0: Yes. I worked in I it in for in quite a few years. Anyway, sorry. That's
1: awesome. You know, and we need more physicists. I would say as a field, if we had more hard sciences in our field, we'd be doing things in a different way. So we need that physics. We need, you know, physics, chemists, biologists, people who have that that harder science background. But we also need social sciences. We need sociologists. I do not know why sociologists get laughed at. They make great data scientists. They really do. They have a different capability set. They have a bit of a, I don't know, more accountability for outcomes that are responsible, that think about more than just, you know, what's the functionality of it? Thinks a little bit farther downfield, what might happen if. There's all of these other backgrounds we could definitely use in the field. So I was saying an overarching theme, if there's something I could wrap up on, we have to open the doors to a whole lot more people with completely different backgrounds that the engineering side of our field doesn't like so much because they have knowledge, skills, experience that are way more important in some cases than just being able to write code.
0: There's more to life than writing code. Well, we did talk a lot about recruiting and how our industry does need to change. Thank you for coming on, Sarah and Tech. And thank you for sharing your story about how you got into tech.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you.
0: I had a lot of fun, too. And that's kind of the point is to, you know, talk about all the topics and everything that's interesting. And yeah, anyway, so thank you. That's (laughs) awesome. Thanks for listening to Sarah in Tech. Feel free to email me at at sarahintech.net or follow me on Instagram at sarahintech. Hope you enjoyed listening.